Hi everyone, this is Dave Wright and welcome to the Player Development Project podcast. I hope you're having a great week out on the grass with your team. A quick update on some of the latest work we've produced to support your coaching over at playerdevelopmentproject.com before we get into today's discussion. Over the last couple of weeks, we've had a top podcast come out, which was produced by PDP Technical Advisor Dan Wright. In the latest edition of On the Grass, Dan hosted Reading FC under-16 coach Sam Grace. Now, Sam is an expert in psychology, and he's also contributed previously to the PDP blog, writing on emotional intelligence and coaching. So if you haven't checked those out, make sure you head over to the blog and search Emotional Intelligence or Sam Grace. In exciting news, we've also just released the first of our latest series of live sessions, I was lucky enough to deliver some sessions on the grass with a group of under 12 and under 14 grassroots players recently in northern New South Wales and Australia, and the first session was posted last week on individual possession. Now we deliberately cut this practice up to show a variety of coaching interventions and progressions within the session, so I really hope you enjoy it. Finally, we've produced a great new research review via our resident professor, William A. Harper, which is a fascinating review of creativity and goal scoring in elite football. So this is a must read for coaches. Today's podcast is a portion of our latest masterclass discussion. Now, I was lucky enough to host Gordon McClelland, founder of Working with Parents in Sport. Gordon has a background in teaching and coaching, particularly in rugby. He's also been exposed to academy football, and he runs workshops all around the UK and beyond supporting parents in sport. He's become a real leader in the area of parent education, and in this conversation, Gordon shares some insights from his extensive work in this space, as well as advice for coaches and parents, plus much more. For the full conversation, head over to playerdevelopmentproject.com and access the Masterclass Discussion section. Look out for more great content on the site coming very soon, and we've got some new member features very close to going live on the site, so watch out for those. As always, a reminder, if you haven't signed up to become a member, we have monthly, annual, or club membership options available at playerdevelopmentproject.com, which means you can sign up and access all of our top coaching content, including the PDP Slack community. Lastly, if you get a chance today, leave us a review for the podcast, and I really hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi everyone, my name's Dave Wright and welcome to another Player Development Project Masterclass discussion. Today I'm delighted to be joined by the founder of Working With Parents in Sport, Gordon McClelland. Gordon, how are you? I'm very well, Dave. Delighted to be here. Thank you so much for your time and also your persistence in overcoming technology. We've had a few issues in trying to get this call up and running, but it's great to have you with us. Look, uh, Gordon, you're the founder of Working With Parents for Sport, a fantastic platform for coaches and parents involved in sport, which I'd highly recommend. You've written a number of books and you've recently become a PDP contributor, which we're very grateful for. Can you share some insights into your background and I guess what motivated you to start your platform? Yeah, so I've got a, a background in, in coaching and education uh, in my early 20s, which say many moons ago, uh, I think I was one of the youngest level three rugby coaches in the country. Uh, I was coaching men's rugby at 25. Uh, I did some elite under 18 rugby uh, at the same time as that. I've coached a couple of under 13 sides to uh, national rugby sevens titles. And I now work in the seven to 13 uh, age group, uh, which I really enjoy. So I, I guess across a co coaching journey, I've transpired, you know, every single age range as, I, as I've got older, which gives you a, a unique insight into uh, lots of different things and lots of different people. Mm, certainly does. And, uh, during that time, obviously, you were involved heavily in being around those sidelines. Were there anything that you, any sort of things that you sort of saw on the sidelines that motivated you to get involved in the parent side of sport? 
Yeah, so when I when I started taking my own children out into the world of football or tennis, and I've taken them to golf and I've taken them to cricket, you know, I, I started getting into discussions with people on the sides as you do as as parents, and I just felt that there was a need for a, a platform that that gave relatable content, things that people could relate to that were real, uh, in a context that they could understand. Because I think loads of parents were trying to do the right things by the children that, you know, desperately loved them, desperately wanted them to do well. And I just think there was a few things where I thought, hang on a minute, we're not overly well informed here. We, we could do this even better. And people wanted to do it as well as they could, but there just wasn't the information there. So uh, I went, went home, uh, looked to get everything, uh, looked on Google to see what I could find for, for, for my own personal you know, knowledge. You know, I'd never been a parent before. I obviously had a sort of some idea from a coaching point of view. And what I found was that there was lots of information, but it was all scattered everywhere. And I wanted to get it all into one place where people could genuinely have a look, see what they needed to find out and hopefully find something in a context that they could use. Mm, yeah, certainly very interesting. And it's a similar story from our perspective of PDP is just trying to bridge the gap with some of the research, which perhaps wasn't really out there and, and bringing it to the fore. So well done on your initiative. In terms of some of those concerns or specific conversations or areas that you felt parents were sort of crying out a little bit for some help or you, or you thought there was a space for information, what were some of the common threads that you were kind of hearing? Yeah, I mean, the one around specialisation always sort of crops up for me because I think there's this genuine belief that, you know, as, as you probably would expect, that the more your child does of something, the better they'll be, which, which we know carries some weight because obviously to be good at something, you've got to spend some time, time on it. But I think there's, there was quite a few who felt that the one sport had to be the be-all and end-all, even with sort of five- and six-year-olds and seven-year-olds. And sort of encouraging them that actually, you know, multi-sport participants end up overtaking these early specialisation peers later on was was quite a hard sell. And, you know, when I said, you know, at the end of the football season in May, I'll see you in September, you know, I may as well have come from Mars. So, it, <laughs> you know, it, it was little things like that. And, and, and then just also the way that, that parents sort of taught to their children and had conversations with them. And we'll see it all over the world, that, that those moments when the child comes off the pitch and the parent starts to give them their analysis of the game and gives them a hard time if it hasn't quite gone according to plan. And then you obviously then dip into the car journey home, which I know we'll talk about later. Um, and again, I don't think it was, it's not that none of this is bad, pet. none of this was anybody attempting to be a bad parent. And, you know, look, there's no such thing as a perfect sports parent. And I say this in all my workshops that I still make some monumental mistakes, even though I, I live in this space every single day. And it's far more complicated than saying you should be doing this and you should be doing that. But I, I think what there needed to be was a, just a greater awareness to the young sporting journey and what youth sport should look like and how best we can support our kids. Yeah, really interesting. And I think, you know, you're talking about, a, I guess, an idea of vulnerability and accepting that as, as parents, you know, people are never going to be perfect. 
kids are never going to be perfect. And, and we've obviously talked a lot in the coaching space about accepting as coaches that we don't always have the answers. I know you've, you've collaborated with Reed Maltby, who is a longtime PDP contributor, and the idea of vulnerability is one he's talked about a lot in terms of that openness. So it's great to hear. I mean, if we dive into it a little bit more in terms of the club piece or the system, the system piece in this whole puzzle, where do you think you know clubs and and coaches can really improve and enhance parental engagement? Well, I think there's got to be. Look, as coaches, and I've got a large coaching audience here, so I'll say this: I think we fear that if we involve parents too much, they will start trampling on our space as coaches, and I totally get that because I feared that for. 10 years when I was coaching I didn't want them anywhere near what what was my world was my world but the reality is that when you speak to coaches one of their biggest gripes when we ask them about their relationships with sporting parents is that the parents give conflicting messages to what they're giving but then we've done absolutely nothing to tell parents what those messages are so, so we're sort of expecting them to do something based on our sports science and coaching background. And actually, we're dealing with people who haven't got that or, or trying to support people. So mm. I think there's got to be a shift from a coaching point of view that we recognize parents as allies and, and not as our nemesis. But then in order to do that, is it from a club and coach point of view, we've got to make sure that we have a very clear uh, culture and philosophy around that club and around that group and that culture and philosophy not only has to be communicated well but actually all our behaviors as coaches and clubs need to live up to that every day and unfortunately they don't we've done work in clubs where you get eight club coaches doing it brilliantly and then two don't and they've immediately obliterated the system because it it's those inconsistencies that don't help parents and then they get anxious. And because they're not expecting it to happen, they then maybe behave in a way that they do. And they then maybe talk to the next parent, ask them what they think's going on, who then asks another parent, and they end up joining up their own dots. And that's where we end up with this sort of sideline, sort of melee of information, which isn't helping. So I think, you know, as I say, we've got to see them as allies. I think we've got to have a very clear philosophy around our group, even around our club on what's important to us, whether we're developing whole people, our playing time policies, our selection policies, all those things. And we need to communicate them and then we need to live, you know, live, live by them all the time. Yeah, really interesting. And, and I couldn't agree more. We were lucky enough to interview uh, a coach called Jonas Blixted from FC Michelin in Denmark a while back on PDP. And he spoke about their unique way of including parents in, I guess, what is still considered to be an elite development program. And elite's not a word I like to use with young players, but this was an academy program for 13 to sort of 17, 18 players. And the parents were very much a part of it, like a lot of grassroots clubs would be run. And I thought it was quite progressive at least for a professional club. So I think that communication piece is really important. And, and I guess opening up to parents as to why we're doing what we're doing as coaches can, can remove a lot of that anxiety. I mean, have you seen effective clubs where they've done this really well, reduce the anxiety and increase the involvement and participation of parents for the better? Yeah, yeah, and, and, I, and I probably see it more because we're relatively new and I think these things take time to embed with the organisations we're working with. What I do see a lot more is groups of coaches who do it brilliantly. 
so I can go and watch a game and watch the coach and see the parents around those training sessions and matches where they know exactly what's going on. They know why it's happening. Mm. They've got coaches celebrating character skills, which they then pick up in the car on the way home. And they've got absolutely no angst around the experience at all. And, and, you, and you can see just because this is what it looks like. And look, I've got, I've got a son who's in a, a Category 1 professional football academy over here. And I remember back when he was uh, eight years old and they were playing grassroots football at that time and a lot of them were together. And we were told that they were in a squad of 10 and it was seven aside and every week they would be rotated, mm. whether, whether they were winning, losing, whatever else. So every third game, you didn't start the game. Now, that season went on. They lost a cup semi-final when I think if the best team had been on the pitch for the last 10 minutes, they may well have won. And they, all, and they also lost to top of the league, where I think, again, if the best seven had played the whole game, they would have probably won rather than drawn. Now, was I grumpy and like a bear with a sore head? Yes, of course I was, because I'm a parent yeah. and I want my child to do well and I want him to be successful. But as I was sort of mithering on to my wife on the way back to the car, obviously away, obviously away from everybody else, the reality was I'd been told that that's how it was going to be. And whether I liked it or not, I'd bought into that program. I knew exactly what I was signing my child up for. So within a couple of minutes, it was like, well, yeah, that we, we've known that. It could have gone the other way next week and it could have worked differently another week. You know, job done. Now. If you hadn't been given that information and this had suddenly happened, you could just imagine the, the sort of reaction to it. Mm. And, and, and I just think it's a nice little story to show the importance of, of living those values and communicating well. I think it's a brilliant example. And I think the fact that the club was able to walk the walk through those semi-final and final games, which obviously for the kids means something at that point. You know, we can have that discussion around when they should be competing, when they should be playing for trophies, all of these things that go with the coaching and, and I guess, uh, youth sport landscape. But the fact that the club delivered on what they said they were doing and you were able to reflect on that is a great example of that transparency, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and, and that proactive communication piece is is something that we talk a lot about with coaches and clubs. But again, you know, we're, we're going to start digging into this, I know, but it becomes really complex because it's very easy for clubs and coaches then to sit parents down in like a classroom-style environment and basically tell them what's going to happen. Mm. Yeah, I know that in my work that doesn't really work either <laughs> because... We can't be seen to be preaching at parents. And actually, parents don't learn by just sitting there and feeling no the back at school. Mm. So we've got to be very clever how we put this information across. So, yeah, parents' meetings are brilliant, but they need to be one part of a, a much bigger picture with maybe some informal drop-ins and informal conversations and trying to support parents during the whole process. And we have to be creative during those parents' meetings as opposed to saying, I'm the coach. This is what we do. If you don't like it, there's the door. And I've heard that done in many places. And they think that they're engaging parents. And that's the conversation. That's it. That's it. Look, and, and again, that comes down to, uh, I mean, our lead researcher, Jimmy Vaughan's written an article in the magazine a while back called, Are We Competing or Collaborating? And, and it sort of crosses over just around the youth sports landscape. And I know Mark Upton's written a lot on the kind of systems that, that go around sport and particularly youth sport. 
and so on. So I think that collaboration part is really important. If we if we sort of step back and look at the system, obviously whether it's whatever sport it is, you know, we have youth sports systems, grassroots, we have uh, development centres or academies or other sorts of different types. But beyond that, do you think a lot of this anxiety and these issues are reflection, reflections of the system? Are they systemic issues uh, in a broader sense from governing bodies perhaps not taking the initiative around sport? And where, where can we sort of, I guess, observe and, and analyse a little bit around where those systemic issues lie? Yeah, look, I think we've got we've got to look at the society issue as a as a whole to start with compared to a generation ago. You know, if we go back a generation, parents used to drop the children at the sport, go and do the weekly chores at the supermarket and come back and collect the children. Now that doesn't happen as much now because we've got parents who drop them at the sport, micromanage the warm-up, watch every single minute of behavior during the course of the week. So we've immediately got a, a different approach, which isn't going to change. But then in fairness to parents, we've also got a society that's very different where parents feel massively judged on the achievements of their children. Mm. Whether whether we like it or not, that's how a lot of parents feel. And obviously sport's really putting your child out there. And it's very easy to take everything very personally or start getting into that idea of living it through your child because, you know, we don't want them to fail. So I think there's a a society piece that that we're going to have to manage and try and sort of reframe it and get parents to understand that sports still provides probably the safest environment to um, equip their children with a, a whole heap of life skills that will carry over into whatever they choose to do, whether it's another sport or in the workplace or anything later on. So I think some of that causes some stress for parents. I think what you're saying there, I think at NGB level and sporting level, some of the structures don't help. Mm-hmm. I think if people, you know, we know that children should be playing multiple sports, for example, and maybe having a break at some point during the year. But then we've got coaches selling products and telling parents that, oh, no, if you want to be good, you've got to play for 12 months. Mm. Now, I know, I know that's rife in America. I know that, that, that that's very commonplace. And now, you know, that puts parents in a really anxious position whether they think they know what's right that it's best not to do that they still feel drawn towards it you know in the UK I've lived through this from you know my lad was scouted when he was three which was part of the reason of of setting this up because that's just mad yeah and luckily I've got some kind of sort of coaching background whatever (laughs) else but I was thinking about then the next six years of the journey that I went through with him until the contracts were handed out at nine. Mm. And the the rat race for those contracts in the UK is just huge. Mm. So it's no surprising. Yeah, it's no surprising that under eight football is competitive when you're a year away from top football clubs offering contracts. And if parents are desperate for the children to get one and they see the children are desperate to get one, well, there's quite a lot of stress in that, mm. you know, and, and so, yeah, I think there's a society thing. I think there's a structural thing from, from the way some of the sports are set up and how we maybe pick some of these early pathway, pathways. I think there's a, a coach piece that I think we've got a coach responsibility to do the right thing by our players and not just what we think is in the right interests of us as us individually. Um, and I think all of it can add stress to parents. So I, I think we just say it's important that we inform them and let them know more. Yeah, look, I, I think there's a number of wonderful nuggets of information to consider there. And I think if we step back and we look at the environments and societies we live in, 
a lot of it, particularly in Western culture, is status-driven, isn't it? You know, everything is about climbing that ladder, whether it's going from school to university, whether it's getting a promotion at work, or whether it's making more money than the person down the road. And again, to tie back to Jimmy's research at PDP, a lot of his, his PhD is around this in the final stages of that, and how status then builds anxiety, affects the way we play, doesn't make conservative decisions on the pitch. How does that affect parents? And, and then also the piece around how young is too young. Now, I know there's a number of influencers online who will talk about the snake oil salesman trying to push kids into these programs, which you touched on, or the race to the bottom around uh, the youth space and how young is too young. Now, I've spoken to a lot of coaches who've worked in academy football, both on and off the record in terms of via PDP or just in, in conversations who are starting to believe that, that that 9 to 12 age group may not be as effective as what it's been seen to be. And we've seen progressive decisions like the one of North Harbour Rugby in New Zealand, AIK in Sweden doing away with those younger age groups. I think it's a, a great step in the right direction, but there still needs to be a lot of conversation had there. Yeah, and look, bizarrely, and, and I don't know whether it's because I'm involved in it, I still see quite a lot of pluses in the academy system. But the reason I see the pluses isn't because... I know that the best nine-year-olds are going to be the best 18-year-olds or mm. anything like that. It's not about that. But what I'm also very conscious of, particularly my own son's experience, is I've got a son who gets two high-quality sports sessions a week, gets a really competitive game on a Sunday, gets the opportunity to travel abroad and play in a tournament, and gets the opportunity to do some leadership awards as a caring leader. Now, I think that is absolutely brilliant as yeah. a parent. I think as somebody who's involved in education, that is absolutely fantastic. And we've got to be really careful here because the equivalent, so I've got a daughter who I think is more able than my son who is younger. Mm. And her, her sporting experience, I would say, is far worse and less effective than my son's mm. because she turns up with limited equipment, with coaches who have got, not as much experience mm. and a far bigger child to coach ratio. Yeah. So I watch some of your sessions and think, oh, I've really crashed around and paid for that, have I? And, I? and I just think while we have these hits at the academy system because we know that actually in the long run, some of those early you know, age things don't necessarily materialize. If the academies handle those really well, and parents can see the academy system as an opportunity to equip their children with those life skills and see it for what it is, to take the best from the system. I think we've just got to, for me, it's just a personal thing, I think we've got to be very careful that we don't criticise and remove them. Because if we start doing that, then I really hope that every small town in the UK is going to have an amazing sports club with the very best coaches getting paid big salaries and putting on and putting on amazing coaching sessions because otherwise we could be in danger of 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 almost if the coaching isn't high enough or good enough that we could end up just losing people anyway because other things are more engaging so I just think there's, there's always two sides to everything, I think. Look, I definitely agree. And, and this is, you know, I've written articles on this as a defender of the system having worked in it because I think at times it can be knocked from those outside of it. Um, and I think you do have to look at the kids who do get those amazing experiences. I remember having a conversation with a former colleague around 
some of the players and that they'd had the opportunity to go to a dozen or 20 tournaments in Europe over their childhood. And what a fantastic opportunity to learn those leadership skills. So I certainly agree with the sentiments. Gordon, just just tying it back to um, the anxiety part. Now, obviously, you have touched on this and we've talked about some of the reasons behind it. If we go back to the grassroots environment, which is much more commonplace for most people, why do you think some of that stress and anxiety happens on the sideline? Is it just the social comparison? Is it just wanting your child to do well? Are there other factors at play or is it as simple as those two things? Well, I think at grassroots, it, it's definitely a tribal thing. I think it's definitely a, a, a pride thing. We all know, you know, football's brilliant for bringing communities together. And look, if you can tell that you can say that your child's better than somebody else's or your team's better than somebody else's, it, you know, it helps you down at the pub at the weekend, doesn't it? And it, 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 it helps you, it helps your social media space. Um, but yeah, I do. I, I think more at grassroots level, I think it's a dented pride thing. And I think, as you say, it goes back to, we just want to see our child succeeding but actually do you know what if we're really good with parents and say to them that look in order for your child to be you know develop some resilience in order for them to potentially achieve you know there's got to be those moments of failure for example Mm. so when those moments are happening which they're bound to happen and they'll happen to any young young player you know what do we do as parents to pick up the pieces you know how do we frame you know failure in effect and then, and also from our point of view, stood there watching is to recognize that actually, yes, it's important to us. Yes, we want to do well. Yes, we want to win. But in the grand scheme of things, it, it, it's, it's not overly important. I'm not saying it's not important because to a lot of people it is, and quite rightly, and I'm desperate to win every week when, when my kids as well. Um, but I think it's just the, the, that balanced attitude and perspective to that. Thanks for joining us on the Player Development Project podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at PlayerDP or find us on Facebook. Don't forget to head over to playerdevelopmentproject.com where you can sign up to our progressive coaching community and gain access to our wide variety of resources to help you in your coaching.